Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippen, co-host with Lucia Hulsether. When I think of critical pedagogies, and especially the books I return to again and again, with prominent places on my bookshelves, there is Laura Rendon's Cinti Passante, Sensing Thinking Pedagogy, Educating for Wholeness, Social Justice, and Liberation published by Stylus in 2009. Laura Rendon is Professor Emerita at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Her life journey from the border to Laredo Junior College informed her commitment to community college student retention and completion. Her degrees in guidance counseling and psychology and PhD in higher education administration led her to focus on contemplative pedagogy and redefining assessment and research in higher education. Rendon has and continues to serve on many boards, such as the Contemplative Mind in Society, the John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education, the Niropa University Board. And she served as a president of the Association of the Study of Higher Education and was a Fetzer Institute Fellow, as well as a racial equity coach with the Gates Foundation. In 2013, Rendon was selected as one of the most powerful and influential women in Texas. Her work is archived in the Nettie Lee Benson Latin American Collection at the University of Texas at Austin. There is such hope and wholeness in Rendon's work, something we need in these pandemic days. She helps connect head to heart, theory to liberatory praxis, honoring both intuition and intellect. The titles of her many articles, such as Realizing a Transformed Pedagogical Dream Field, Academics of the Heart, Contemplative Pedagogy in a Culturally Diverse Classroom, Validating Culturally Diverse Students, Shattering the Deficit-Based Grand Narrative Toward a Culturally Validating Latino Student Success Framework, Transforming the First Year of College for Students of Color. All of these titles show her innovative focus on inclusivity and innovation. And her phenomenal diversity of research and praxis reminds us of the importance of preparation and cultural creativity and social justice in the work of teaching. There are so many discoveries and necessary challenges in Rendon's teaching and writing. We are thrilled to be able to host Professor Laura Rendon on this podcast. One of the quotes, um, Laura, that is, I think um, that I that I see a lot from you. Um, that I think is like one of the one of the ones that kind of rises up out of um, your many writings is social justice becomes a theme anytime faculty work with underserved students. And um, yes. one, so I wanted to open by just kind of bringing our focus to that. And to ask you um, how, if you might introduce yourself to our listeners 
via that quote. Um, how does social justice become a theme for you in your life, in your teaching, um, in your practice? And how would you ask our listeners to kind of focus on it as we go through this conversation? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. And thank you so much for embracing uh, my work. It's a pleasure to, to join you and, and Tina in this podcast. Uh, so when I speak about social justice, it's not just an academic theme for me. It's a very personal uh, issue for me. Um, I was born along the U.S.-Mexico border in South Texas. So I'm a border woman and um, I grew up in poverty. Um, I didn't know what college was about. No one in my family had gone to college. And um, so as I was growing up, I had no one to turn to with regard to my future and how I could change my circumstances. All I could see was what was around me. And at some point I thought, I, this is not what I want for my future. If I ever have kids, I don't want them to go through what I went through. Um, and so all of my life, I have um, done everything that I can to help students who grow up like me with hopes and with dreams, but not knowing how to realize them. And so to me, a big social justice issue has been the education of underserved students, ethnic racial students in particular, who are the first in their family to go to college, who come from low-income households, students that have been oppressed and discriminated, who are viewed and described with deficit-based approaches and and languages, uh, that they're incapable of learning, uh, for example, that that they bring nothing to to college. Uh, students who are seeking for affirmation that yes, they can do this work. Um, And so uh, when when I speak about social justice, it it stems from my own own background, my own upbringing, uh, my own sense of responsibility that my success is, is really for their success. And I hope that everything that I do can create openings for more students to move further along in their lives so that they have the opportunity uh, to, to be successful and to, um, to really um, uh, then turn around and, and give back to others. Yeah, that's, that's lovely in your work. Um, well, I wanted to make sure that our listeners were introduced to your Uh, main teaching philosophy, and then we're going to link back into social justice and and classroom practices. Um, But, uh, you know, I came to your work through uh, Sintin Pisante pedagogy, thinking, feeling uh, pedagogy. And um, so I find myself going back to those privileged agreements all the time, because that's the status quo, uh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. where I teach. And it, it's it sort of makes Frere's banking model have um, some real heft to it and, and reality to it for me. And so mm-hmm. your privileged agreements governing the present pedagogical dream field, which I love that phrase, um, and the seven agreements that are firmly entrenched in academic culture in the academy. Um, 
And it's, it's a way to know the terrain of our status quo. And as you say, and this is a quote from you, to create a new teaching and learning dream field. Mm-hmm. So I, I think sometimes uh, I find myself getting bogged down in the day-to-day and the committees and the uh, new curricular insanities that I forget to dream and have vision. So this is where I hold your work really uh, in great appreciation. So I use um, this chapter in my religion, education, and activism class to begin a conversation about neoliberal education and responses of critical um, and liberatory pedagogies. Would you talk about why it's imperative to know these agreements in order to dream different spaces and different dreams um, about that uh, these spaces that honors our humanity, as you say, instills a sense of wonder, sacredness, and humility in our college classrooms, respects and embraces alternate cultural realities, involves social change and healing, and connects faculty and students in meaningful ways. I just love that quote. I mean, we never think about healing and transformation, right? Um, unless it's top down. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, yeah. And I love that quote from your book. And I realize it's a huge question, but could you um, introduce us and define uh, Sintipisante pedagogy for us? Yes. Uh, when when I talk about Sintipisante pedagogy, I, I'm I, I feel that we're, we're looking at you know, at least two or three things here. It's, for me, it's a culturally validating deep learning experience. It's going to address the rhythmic balance between intellectual, social, emotional, and inner life skill development. And it's going to engage students in these deep learning experiences using what I'm now calling, because I'm in the process now of um, updating Senti Pensante Pedagogy with a second edition. Hmm. But I'm going back to, um, you may be familiar with Gloria Nasaldua's work um, and uh, you know, taking her concept of conocimiento, which is a very high level of enlightenment. And to get to that, uh, is, she talks about the seven stages of conocimiento, uh, but in order for us to, um, to really grow uh, we use, uh, you know, these uh, tools, uh, arts-based tools, or what I'm calling prácticas de conocimiento, illuminative knowledge tools. Um, and, and it also involves students in projects that engages them in deep learning with these tools, these experiences that connect them to issues of injustice and inequality and that foster agency and self-care and critical consciousness and social activism. Um, I feel that, I mean, we've just gone through, and we are going through an extraordinary period in the world. Uh, our generation, for some reason, was granted this gift of experiencing something that um, we had never experienced before and that we didn't know how to deal with this before. And And I call it a gift because I believe that even though a lot of things are terrible about it, and certainly we would never want to wish that again, though I think it's going to come again uh, with another generation. Um, But it opened the door for us to pause and to begin to take stock of what we've done in the past, what has worked, what hasn't worked. And it opened the door for us to now 
begin to dream differently, begin to say, wait a minute, you know, where did we go wrong in some, in some areas and what do we need to change? So the agreements are really, um, I, I took them from Don Miguel Ruiz's book, The Four Agreements. Um, and basically he says, you know, if, if, if there's a dream of life and you don't like that dream of life, you know, and, and it's based on certain agreements, we need to change the agreements. Basically he's saying if there's a vision with certain rules and, and regulations and you don't like that vision and those rules and regulations, you need to change them. That's basically it, although he's speaking from a, a spiritual perspective given you know, his own indigenous training. Um, and so I began to uh, read that book and to figure out exactly then, how do I apply this to the vision of education, the dream field of education that is existing right now? And are there some agreements, some rules and regulations, some practices and policies that have created harm or, or, uh, or they're outdated and they need to be refashioned, uh, rethought. Um, and so then I came up with those uh, you know, seven uh, agreements, although there are more than those. I mean, when I've, when I've done workshops with faculty and I ask them to reflect on the agreements present at their institutions, oh my God, that opens up. <laughs> a lot of discussion because, uh, you know, there, there are some related to tenure and promotion, for example, there, there are those that are in student affairs, there, there are those that, that, that are, um, you know, in our classrooms. Uh, so there are multiple things that I believe uh, need to change, but the door is open. If we go back to same old, same old, we will not have learned anything. And I'm hoping that we take this experience um, and, and really uh, dig deep into what is to be learned from this experience. How do we refashion what we do? Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's where we are right now. I just realized that we might, some of our listeners might not be familiar with what the agreements actually are. We're talking about what the, you know, what the seven are. So I'm just going to say them right now. So that okay. our listeners who might not yeah, know. Yeah, because I don't have the book in front of me. So yeah, go ahead. Luckily I do. Um, so the, there's seven agreements that are kind of shaping, um, and you can you know, obviously jump in, correct me mm -hmm. if I'm saying this yeah. wrong, um, shaping kind of normative education and that yes. schools are not only sort of reflecting, but also like like actively assimilating students and teachers into uh, in their design. And those are one, the agreement to privilege intellectual slash rational knowing, the agreement of separation, the agreement of competition, the agreement of perfection, the agreement of monoculturalism, the agreement to privilege outer work as opposed to inner work, um, and the agreement to avoid self-examination. Um, what I am thinking, what I thought about when I first read this is you know, the, the place where I first no encountered the notion of agreement and what people agree to because of the kind of institutional context we are immersed in is um, the concept of hegemony and manufactured consent. Like where do people learn to go along with the kind of drifts of power? And of course that kind of Marxian cultural tradition is so important to educators like Frera um, and kind of people working in democratic grassroots transformational pedagogy. Um, 
And it can be really, really hard to go against that grain yes. in, in institutions. And so I'm wondering um, if you might give us some, some concrete examples of that challenge in your classroom, uh, in your classroom, your teaching context, classroom broadly defined, um, maybe some ex and examples of how you've, how you've met it. Well, part of Senti Pensante Pedagogy is um, sentiri pensar, which is to sense and to think. To, I mean, it, it really speaks to all that we are and all our, our humanity and to use everything that, 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 uh, that we were given in order to um, educate ourselves and to help to educate others. I mean, some students um, like us, many, I, I would say most of them, have also been socialized to just robotically agree with everything, you know, not even think about these things. So when you introduce emotion, for example, uh, into the classroom, uh, some students aren't ready for that. And um, some faculty aren't ready for that either. And so that's, that's one challenge that, um, that I think uh, you know, we, that, that, that we face. And, um, and then some students are, are, are afraid to go against, and faculty too, some of these agreements, or they don't really know how to do it. You know, what, what, is the, what are the steps? You know, what do, what do we do? My own feeling is that we need to, first of all, illuminate these agreements. I mean, just bring them to the surface, because we can't deal with an issue until we identify what the issue is. So we need to bring them to the surface and then engage in a process of, okay, you know, if this is an agreement, a practice, a policy that is creating harm that has outlived its utility, how do we change that agreement? What would be a brand new way of, um, of working? Um, and so when we engage faculty in that sort of process, then I think that opens the way for them to, to sense that this can be done. You know, but, but first we have to identify what those agreements are in order for us to then refashion them. There's one pedagogical practice that I'm, I'm really drawn to that you um, have written about, which is the Kahita project. Yes. Uh -huh. As a way to get at that um, inner um, you know, contemplative practice and also um, honor identity and um, get away from that monocultural um, perspective. So that, that seems like a way, a really concrete way that you have uh, transformed uh, one of, more than one of the agreements. So if you could uh, tell us about that project. That's one of my favorite projects. I, I actually borrowed that from um, Dr. Alberto Pulido, who teaches um, ethnic studies at, um, at the University of San Diego. I actually met him when he was at Arizona State University in, in its West Campus. And um, I asked Dr. Pulido to share with me what he did uh, using this Cajita project. By the way, the Cajita is a box. And cajita is like a little box. He calls it cajita, but it could be caja or cajita. And, but the students have carte blanche in order you know, to you know, construct these boxes in, in any way that they, they want. 
He uses these boxes around this time of the year, uh, Dia de los Muertos, Day of the Dead, which is a big celebration of life in the um, Latinx community. And he has students reflect on someone that has passed on that made an impact on their lives and that helped shape their identity. And he has these students uh, insert photographs, uh, you know, artifacts uh, inside these cajitas, letters, uh, whatever, whatever makes sense. And these students display these cajitas. Um, what I've done in my student affairs course is take this cajita example. And these are students that, I, that I've had in my classes uh, who are wanting to be at the front lines of working with students uh, in admissions offices and residence halls, uh, financial aid office, uh, judicial affairs, whatever. And it's one thing to have students say, well, I'm working with students out there. And it's another thing to say, who am I? Mm -hmm. you know, who am I in this relationship? What do I bring to the, my relationship with students? What has influenced me? What is the impact that I want to make in the student affairs profession? And so I give this assignment with those questions so that students construct these cajitas. And again, I give them you know, a lot of latitude in terms of, of, um, of how they want to develop the cajitas. And I'll talk about you know, one or two cajitas. I have a lot of pictures. But, um, you know, these stand out. This is a young lady whose um, grandmother lived in Liberia in the 90s. And Liberia was having um, a civil war. And um, so the cajita that this student, Alicia, uh, made was actually a scarf that she wrapped around her waist. She did that in honor of her grandmother, who lived in Liberia during this time. The women there did not know when the village would be attacked. And so they had to make sure that if the village was invaded, they would take all their prized possessions with them because they had no time to really you know, look for them. So they wrapped the most important prized possessions around their waist with this scarf. And so that became Alicia's cajita. Um, and so uh, she talks about it and she talked about her grandmother and the situation in Liberia at the time. There's another cajita, which is a suitcase that, um, um, that one of my students uh, constructed. And his story, his name is Vijay and he's now a professor at uh, Salem State University. Uh, but his story is that he, when I gave the assignment, he was like, oh, yeah, I, I don't know what to do with this. I've never had this kind of an assignment, this kind of crazy year. What am I going to do? Uh, and one morning he saw this old suitcase and he said, okay, it's time to throw this suitcase away. And so he was on his way to the dumpster and his, his, his mother, and they're, 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 they're from India. Uh, he runs after Vijay and uh, don't throw that suitcase away. And he says, why not? It's all you know, dusty and torn. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. That suitcase carried all of our belongings when we moved from India to the United States. At that moment, Vijay realized that that would be his cajita. 
And so in it, he places some of the books, for example, that have had an impact on him, the little shirt he was wearing when his grandfather uh, passed away. Um, and uh, so and those are just two examples. What I do with those cajitas is we showcase them the last day that we meet because it's important to build community and trust. Uh, and so this is not the kind of an assignment that you make you know, for students to develop the first couple of weeks of class. It takes time to build that community. Uh, it takes time for them to trust me and to trust each other. So you know, before we get to that, uh, I take the time to, to build trust in the classroom. And so we, we have what I call a cajita gallery walk. All of the cajitas are viewed in silence for about 10 or 15 minutes. We have food, well, it's kind of a celebration. And, uh, and then I ask for volunteers, uh, for students who would like to share their cajita. Most students will volunteer and I tell them, this is, this, you don't have to, you only say what you feel comfortable saying. I mean, not everything is public. So I can tell you that by the time that we end that class, there's hardly a dry eye. It's a very powerful experience. Uh, many of these students have, have emailed me to tell me that their cajita remains in their office. Uh, and so this becomes a very personal thing for them. So that's a story of the Cajitas project. I love that project. <laughs> I'm trying to formulate a question here. I think um, one of the one of one of the things that I want to be sure we, we talk about is your role in both um, training and sort of providing a sort of pedagogical set of alternatives for specifically people who are entering higher education administration, who are kind of going into more like institutional roles. And what, at least in like my own experiences, both personally and kind of like navigating these places and talking to others, I, I know sometimes felt as a tension between one's like sort of personal commitments and journey and hopes and um, aspirations for what, what they can do to have an impact and the ways that it, like, institutions like universities often are can be quite constraining and there's a limited amount of um you know that people sometimes run into I mean Sarah Ahmed and talking about this sort of like diversity diversity work within institutions of higher talk about like people who are doing this work experiencing institutional walls um being tokenized um and finding themselves to be working in offices that have quite limited resources. And so I, you know, I am wondering if you could speak to that, whether um, how you address that kind of tension in your own um, classrooms or um, if you've kind of developed strategies um, for, for navigating that. Well, I can tell you what I've learned within this past year and a half. Um, when I believe that we have had just an incredible amount of challenges uh, as faculty and as administrators. Um, and one of the things that I have uh, learned is that um, there is a faculty, students and staff are experiencing a significant amount of trauma 
and that we need to engage in healing, uh, which is something that I think, which is another agreement that we, we've agreed not to pay attention to our own self-care and well-being and healing. Uh, very, very limited attention. And, um, and now there is an opening for us to say, wait a minute, you know, this is not right. Um, I mean, I, on my Twitter feed, um, one day I found a comment that pretty much sums it up. It was a faculty member who said, I can't, I just can't. So that pretty much summed it up for me, that people are overwhelmed, burned out. There's a housing crisis. Um, there, you know, people are, have lost jobs. People lost family members. People got sick. People are stressed. People are depressed. And yet we're asked to just you know, move along as if nothing had happened. And I believe that that's way too much to ask of faculty and of administrators, we've got to step back and say, wait a minute, what can we do here to attend to our self-care, to our healing and to our well-being? And uh, what needs to happen uh, in order for us to take better care of ourselves? And um, I, you know, I, I, I sense that there is that opening and that people are beginning to look at this issue um, and, um, and, and, and try to, to, to come to some way to address it. Um, right now, I'm, I'm working with an institution, I'm not gonna name it, that is dealing precisely with this. Um, and, um, and what they've asked is, to, and I'm one of the consultants that is being brought in uh, to do a series of workshops for faculty and staff and administrators on healing and well-being, um, and so we're going to do that. And so we're in the in the process of of, of developing uh, you know those those workshops, which I think is an important step and a, a courageous act of the administrators to to support this and to put their resources behind this. But one of the things that we've realized is that yeah, we're there going to be there for you know, a limited amount of time uh, and this work needs to be sustained. So one of the things that we have to do is to come up with some concrete ways so that the work is sustained and that there are resources behind whatever concrete steps are taken to move forward. Um, so anyways, that, that I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, but that's what came to mind as you were talking. Yeah, yeah. We, we both want to follow up on that. Lucia, yeah. you go first. And then <laughs> what I was just going to say is, yeah, I think that I mean, sometimes I see this with students. I see this with, um, you know, colleagues um, that often the I mean, we talk about the sort of um, race and gendered dynamics of mentoring and support. Um, relationships that happen, sort of the unpaid and invisible work, yes. but not invisible to so people benefiting from it, um, that happens within institutions so that, you know, there might be only one person working in the Department of Multicultural Affairs or in yes. the Department of Chaplain, like chaplaincy or um, in the Department of Black Studies, like, and a lot of that, a lot of the work of sustaining and maintaining people, mm -hmm. keeping people literally alive, is being done by folks who are 
sometimes unhoused, um, sometimes like not able to make ends meet. And I think, yeah, one of the challenges this is less, you know, one of the challenges I am, I, I face is like, or that I'm often thinking about is like how to like balance talking about like individual strategies for, um, maintaining and care being and having an ethic of care with, um, the sort of way that some of that um, care work can become a band-aid over like giant gaping holes and sort of structural support within, um, you know, for, for people's health lives, et cetera. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. No, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's totally a big challenge. In fact, there, I hear there's, I am, I'm, I'm Professor Emerita now, but I am in touch with a lot of you know, people who work in colleges and universities. And um, I mean, I hear there's mass resignations in some places. And um, I also you know, know that, uh, as I mentioned, you know, that people are just burned out. They've had it, they've just had it. Um, if we don't do something, um, you know, this whole thing could can, can implode in front of us. Um, so that is a critical area that remains, I believe, unresolved. And it has to do with the fact that historically we haven't paid attention to these issues. Uh, and so uh, the opening is there now for us to really begin to address that issue. Because if it doesn't get addressed, it's only going to get worse. And, and I wonder, um, to spin off what Lucia was saying, um, you know, uh, in terms of the boundaries of, of classism and, and racism and, and other things on our campuses that those who cook, clean, mow, fix, um, you know, who make poverty wages at most of our institutions of higher education, uh, that that is sort of a, it sets the template uh, of how much an institution really cares for itself and its own. Um, and, and so um, I would like to kind of see if you can uh, connect for us your um, commitment to contemplative practices uh, and social justice and, and where you see the, the sort of the, the sweet spot of that in your, in your activist work and how um, contemplative practices help you prepare um, you use this term uh, that I, I need further unpacking on that I like. Uh, it's called shaky tenderness. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you... that, that's really, it's not my, my uh, unfortunately, I love the term, but uh, it's Trumpa Rinpoche who founded uh, Naropa University. Okay. And he used the term shaky tenderness. Um, and basically it's, you know, whenever we confront a challenge, whenever we're dealing with these dramas, we have this shaky tenderness and, um, and um, it, it speaks to our vulnerabilities. Um, uh, and yet, if we step into the vulnerability and say, what is to be learned from this, uh, we can come out stronger. In fact, one of the things that I've learned that is when we're the most down, the most uh, challenged when we say, oh my God, that is when we have the most to learn. And if we step into that, if we learn from it, um, if we um, you know, move forward, 
then we come out stronger. And um, so that's the gift of that vulnerability and that shaky tenderness, so to speak. <laughs> I'm looking for, I'm trying to decide what to ask you next. Um, I guess I will say, you know, I I think that, I, in, so let me ask you the question that we want to ask you about your 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 email signature, especially as we sort of wind down. Um, <laughs> so Tina's asking about this sweet spot between social justice, contemplation, and you sort of describe yourself in, in, your, in your email and in other places as um, a student advocate, a speaker, a writer, and a consultant. Um, what does it mean to be a student advocate to you in, in all of these roles? You know, as, as I mentioned earlier, um, everything that I do is for students who grow up like me, first generation, you know, low income. Um, and so uh, what I would like to see is, is, is more, uh, what I, I said, well, let, let me backtrack a little bit. I, I, I see myself often as being the voice of the voiceless, the voice of the students that, that are viewed as incapable of doing anything. And, and so we wanna turn that around so that we view students with, with an acid-based framework, that they are capable knowers, that they bring knowledge, that they can construct knowledge, that they have phenomenal assets that are not well understood by most educators. The asset, for example, of, um, of resistance, they resist poverty, they resist micro and macroaggressions. And they have this beautiful asset um, among others, which, which I'm not sure we have time to talk about, but I'll, I'll talk about this one. They have the asset um, of, of what I, we call giving back. And it's some research that we've done on students. They want to earn a college degree not just to hang it on the wall. I mean, that's nice, but they want to earn their degree to make this world a better place to live, to make a significant impact on their communities, to serve as role models for those coming behind them. And that's basically the essence of my work, that what all that I've done is not just for me. You know, the purpose of my work is to make love work you know, to make things work for those that are coming behind me. And um, so I think, you know, that's, that's a lot of what keeps, keeps them going. But I also want them to develop themselves as whole human beings. We can assist them in making a difference in healing our, their communities and the world. They can do this. They, they're capable of doing this when we work with pedagogies that help them to succeed where they can see themselves in what they're learning, where they can see themselves in projects that are going to help them to give back and make their communities better. I love that. And I love, um, you know, it reminds me of your concept of sort of validation pedagogies or pedagogies yes. of validation. And, you know, when I think about, when I hear the word validation, I think this is maybe true for lots of people, like, you're like, oh, like that just means telling people they're doing a good job. Like, well done. But that is not what you mean by validation. That's right. Mm -hmm. the validation yeah. is the whole process yes absolutely there, there's nuances involved in validation it's really about coming coming to their our relationship with students in a very authentic way i mean if 
if there is one thing that I hope we learn from the experience of the pandemic was that we need each other, you know, that we're relational human beings. I mean, we found ways to connect with people during the pandemic, you know, with drive-by birthday parties and weddings, you know, with uh, happy hours on Zoom. I mean, we missed each other. We, we wanted to, to connect. And students want that as well, but coming in an authentic, from an authentic place, not just, well, Laura said to validate, I'm going to do it. No, no, no. You know, students will pick up on that. We've, it has to come from our hearts. I believe in you. I think you can do science. I think you can be successful in college. These are affirming statements that make a huge difference for students. And it has a long lasting impact. Whenever I speak to students, I give them the example of Lizzo, which you may know Lizzo, a big, huge pop star. Um, and they had her on one of my favorite programs, the CBS Sunday Morning. And um, they asked her, you know, uh, who, who do you attribute your success to? She goes back to her band director in school. This was years ago. His name is Manny Gonzalez. And they brought in Manny Gonzalez to surprise her. And she was like, oh, my God, you know, you told me, get it together, girl. You can do this. So he was her validating agent. She remembers this from way back when. That is the long-lasting impact of validation when done correctly. Yeah, you've done a lot of work on uh, retention uh, yes. especially first generation and students of color, and also cultivation, as you were just uh, talking about, and in particular at community college. Um, and you also attended a community college. I did. So, um, and there's there's been, you know, talk of making community college tuition free. Um, mm -hmm. So where do you see sort of the, the that headed and, and in terms of um, community colleges being that space to, to lift up um, the generations who need I actually went to two community colleges, the first one in my hometown of Laredo, and then I, I earned, a, I was in there for one semester at San Antonio College, uh, and I earned an AA and then transferred from there to the, to, um, to the University of Houston. Uh, I think that ultimately we will have free tuition, uh, uh, free community college. Uh, um, I believe it was in the 60s or 50s that in California, it was either free or extremely low tuition. Uh, so we've had that before. Um, the whole idea here is to open the doors for access to higher education for students who are low income, for students who, um, uh, I mean, in, in my case, um, I couldn't travel a long way. So having something in my community was important. That's, just, that's the case for many students. Uh, they're very connected to their families. They wanna to go to their local community college. But I would like to also see those community colleges um, um, not only prepare students for jobs, but prepare them for a liberal education, prepare them to go on to a four-year institution uh, even get their masters and their doctorates, you know, like I did. Now, not everybody's going to do that, uh, but I think that we need to open the door for that possibility as well. Okay, 
we're winding down. We're almost, I can't believe it's already been an hour. Um, okay. So one of my favorite things that, that Tina um, does is, and Tina, you jump in here if I'm explaining this wrong, um, is she does this exercise, which I can't remember what book you got this from, but yeah. Uh, this is from Parker Palmer's The Courage to Teach. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, okay. I, did, I, I did a session with him a few months ago. It was really yeah. nice. Yeah. And you've been at the Fetzer Institute. So it's I have yeah. there. Yeah. So the, as I understand it, so the question is like, Tina gets people to, to draw this. What is your metaphor for yourself as a teacher? <laughs> and I remember being a first year in college in one of Tina, in Tina's first year seminar, and we drew our metaphor for ourselves as a learner. Um, I can't remember what I drew, but we were wondering if you have we know that we're kind of asking you this on the fly, but if you have a metaphor for yourself or an image that could be a metaphor for you as a teacher. Very good question. And I actually have not uh, thought about that, but as you're asking the question, what's coming to me, and I may change this later, but what's coming to me is a powerful, strong, angel who brings hope and healing and community and compassion to the world. How's that? <laughs> That's good. That's, that fits right, right in with um, your, your thinking and your feeling. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, are we ready for the last question? Uh, is there anything sure. you want to ask us or, or talk about that we didn't get to? Because there is so much richness in your work. Yeah, there, there, there is a lot. I, I would only say that um, the term sentipensante um, is, really comes from Orlando Fals Borda's work with a fisherman of the Colombian coast. Um, Eduardo Galeano took the term and put it in his book, The Book of Impraises, but a, a, a person from Colombia let me know it wasn't, it wasn't Galeano's term, it was Orlando Fosborda's term. Mm -hmm. Orlando did ethnographic research with the fishermen, and of course they don't have the education that you and I have, but they had knowledge. They knew the seas, they knew the moon, they knew the stars, they knew the sun, they knew the currents. And they told Orlando uh, Fosborda, Somos sentipensantes. We are sentipensantes. We use our minds, we use our intuition to learn how to fish. Uh, and so I thank the fishermen of the Colombian coast for sentipensante. I love that image. Um, yeah, and I feel like, yeah, I just want to sit with it. I, um, and as we transition, I'm wondering, um, our last question that we always ask our guests is, what are you thinking slash feeling with right now, whether that's reading or um, something you're watching or what else do we have? Listening to, when people talk about music sometimes, engaging with right now that you might wanna um, share with, with us, with our listeners. It could have something to do with the conversations we've had over the last hour, or it could have nothing 
um, obvious to do with it. Um, people <laughs> talk about trash television and they talk about their pedagogy books. And they talk about <laughs> the other. So. Okay. Well, I just got this book in the mail yesterday because Anderson Cooper had her on and I thought, wow, yeah, because this is really about relationships and um, it's called Saving Grace by uh, Kristen Powers. Uh, I haven't, I, I just got it, so I haven't finished reading it, but Essentially, she talks about navigating the toxic elements of our culture and how to work with people who drive you crazy, which I think we all need to know about. And so I, thought, I need to get that book. Um, uh, but she talks about the importance of humility and admitting when we're wrong and seeing hope and possibility in others, no matter how crazy they may be. So that's that's one book um, that um, that um, I look forward to to finishing reading. The other one is teaching Gloria and Asaldua, which uh, takes her concepts and you know, how to apply them in the classroom. And, and then on CBS This Morning, they had, I never, I never buy children's book, but this is Three Little in Engines. And it's about uh, these three engines that needed to get over the mountains. Uh, and the first one makes it, uh, but that engine didn't have a lot of uh, obstacles. The other two did. And so in the end, this engine, engine decides that you know, it's gonna help the other two. And so it's a story about needing each other and, and how some people have it better in life than, than others. Um, so yeah, like a lot of people, millions of others, uh, I watched Squid Game uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I, I actually was, I, I learned to look beyond the violence for its kernels of, of wisdom and, um, and it also inspired me to write a poem about those, um, those pieces of wisdom. But um, uh, for example, um, from that I learned being last can actually be advantageous because it, it gave you an opportunity to, to see what other mistakes people made. And so you're not gonna make those mistakes. So if you're last, you can actually move forward faster. Uh, and I talked about this, our most challenging situations offer the most to learn. A sense of purpose keeps us spiritually alive. And in a game, it's not all about strength and brute force. We also have to consider strategy and experience. So being old can actually be a good thing because you have experience and wisdom in the group. Uh, so anyway, those are just some of the things that, that, that come to mind. Tina? Okay, uh, I have an, uh, a, a paper that I'm presenting in a week <laughs> on Zoom <laughs> at an annual religion meeting um, yes. for a fester for a friend. Anyway, I'm looking at... Um, Which was supposed to be in San Antonio. Yeah. Really? Okay. And what, is it a conference that you're presenting at? Uh, yes, it's a it's a joint American Academy of Religion Society of Biblical Literature, which uh, Lucia is also presenting at. Okay. So uh, next weekend will be on screen for us. There are a few people who are who are attending. Um, there's been lots of talk about well, it's in Texas, but uh, you know, in terms of the politics right now. But yes. um, but you know, most most folks are are staying home, um, mm -hmm. including including our uh, Wabash Center for Teaching uh, Theology and Religious Studies. They're doing everything on Zoom. Um, mm -hmm. so, so for this article I'm writing on um, the image of God, Imago Dei in Genesis 1, 
um, what is it to read it as a racialized image? Uh, really, whew, really problematic. No easy solution. I'm not, mm -hmm. not going to come to one. But I, um, I've been reading since I do uh, apocalyptic and fantastic and also horror but I can't watch Squid Game, I have to say. <laughs> I started it. Um, this book called The Dark Fantastic um, it by Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, Race and the Imagination from Harry Potter to the Hunger Games. Wow. Um, and it's a lot of, well, what if, you know, there's so many white characters in fantasy, classic fantasy literature, um, looking at um, uh what does that mean that, um, and she comes up with a theory for the dark fantastic and a chapter called Hermione is black <laughs> and, and sort of playing with um, how race has been um, uh, injected into some of the more current fantasy in ways that are not so great and, and what the future holds. And of course, Octavia Butler, uh, who's the standard bearer um, in African-American fantasy lit. So um, that's what I'm reading right now. That sounds fantastic. I'm going to get that book, The Dark, the oh, dark Fantastic. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds and good. Lucia. Um, I'm not doing a ton of reading or watching right now because I'm recovering from a concussion, but Let's see. I, I have done a little bit of like, like turning on, turning on Netflix and not watching it, but just listening in the mm -hmm. background. And so I'm really um, enjoying Sex Education, the new television show, um, which is about a child in high school. It's a British show of his mother is a sex therapist. And so there are all of the embarrassments of having a mother who is a sex therapist and being a kind of like nerdy um, mm. high school boy. But then he discovers that his superpower is to counsel um, all of the students at his high school, all of his peers about their problems and their sex lives. Um, and I think it's a very clever show because you know, sex education as like an institution in the United States, I would argue, is not very good, at least in, I mean, it's very state by state. When I grew up, it was called family life. Um, and it was mostly just a lot of like sex shaming. Um, but it does this thing where the, there's a kind of like pedagogy of body knowledge that is being delivered through the this like sitcom-y teenage cast where the adults are just as clueless as adults mm -hmm. usually are. Um, anyway, so I'm finding it, I'm finding it quite funny. Um, <laughs> I've not seen, uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, well, there's so much stuff in so many so streaming services, but I haven't heard of sex education. I'll look that up. Sounds it's interesting. On Netflix. Too. Yeah, it's very, um, it's, it's very funny. <laughs> it's quite good. All of that. Yeah. And it's in Britain. It's a great yeah. <laughs> so, And I hope you recover, uh, Lucia. You're the second person. Yesterday I had someone else that that had a concussion. Uh, so uh, it's yeah. not fun. Yeah. It's not a fun time. But yeah. slowly it's slow and steady. It's getting better little by little. Yeah. Stay well. Well, Laura Rendon, thank you so much for your time and for your work um, and the connections you've made that have challenged us and also given us hope and some healing. Mm -hmm. Those of us who are still <laughs> teaching in the in the gullies. <laughs> uh, it's been my honor. I'm 
very touched that you have embraced my work and um, thank you so, so much. Muchísimas gracias, as they say in my culture. Okay, thank you. All right, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast. You've been listening to our interview with Professor Laura Rendon. Our audio engineer is Aaliyah Harris. Our theme music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance along with Aviva and the Flying Penguins. And I'm happy to note that our outro music is by our audio engineer, Aaliyah Frequency Harris. It's called Water's Edge. Take care. Thank you.